Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. Sorry, we're coming a little bit late this time around, but it's summer, so I feel like we we get a little bit of an excuse there. Uh, I will not explain why we're coming late, but we're here now for you. It's Saxon Baird. I'm with Sam Backer as always, and we have our favorite guest, David Turner, on from Penny Fraction. Third time returner. Third time on the show. Happy to be back. Yeah, welcome. The hat trick. The money for nothing hat trick. The money for nothing hat trick. So today we're talking about England's House of Commons. Okay, not really. Should we also say that this is the first irl money for nothing we've ever recorded oh yeah it is yeah it is. we're yeah, actually yeah, yeah. in a human room together yeah we are yeah we're in we're in sam's uh living room which will not t- disclose what borough or part of new york it's in uh for uh, safety reasons no uh, just kidding we're in bed <laughs> <laughs> but the the uh yeah but no uh we aren't actually talking about the house of commons but we kind of are because the house of commons committee in the uk did an investigation into music streaming and according to this bipartisan committee, the pandemic has bipartisan? helped. Bipartisan? They've got more than one. Well, uh, partisan? Bipartisan? Multiple? Nonpartisan? Nonpartisan. Yeah, yeah. But basically, they, they did this report because, according to them, the pandemic has helped to expose the inequalities that were otherwise hidden in the music streaming industry. No one not, saw them. No not, one knew. No one knew. You did you know, David? No, I didn't know about no, anything at all. No one knew. How could they no know? No one listens to this uh, podcast, no. shows, right? I mean, in fairness, we learned during right. the pandemic. Oh, right. Yeah, right. I yeah, mean, we yeah. have learned a lot. Let's not deny that. We have learned a lot. So the MPs just learned uh, that, hey, guess what? Um, the music streaming kind of sucks for artists. So uh, as, their intro- as the introduction of this report noted that even successful critically acclaimed artists have found that they cannot live off the streaming revenue and with streaming currently accounting for more than half of the global music industry's revenue this inquiry will look at the business models operated by platforms such as spotify apple music amazon music and google play the uk government is interested in why music streaming is so shitty for artists and are actually did uh what was it 250 page report okay oh only over 100 and a lot and like uh Weeks yeah, weeks of, weeks of testimony, hundreds of written, of written report, of like sort of written testimonial. So like they did work. They did work here. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they did, they did work. So maybe maybe to start, like maybe a good place, so maybe a good place to start is to just uh, start from the very beginning. Like who got this investigation, this report going in the UK government? Yeah, Um. so hey, David, again from Penny Fraction, I also want to give my quick disclaimer. My day job is at SoundCloud.com or the SoundCloud app that you can get on the Apple, the App Store? Yeah, the App Store. <laughs> so I just, the only reason I say that is just because it's like, I like giving disclaimers. But the, but the, but the start of this report actually sort of started with this musician, Tom Gray, who used who used to be in the band Gomez? Who does anyone familiar with them? Yeah, I actually I vaguely remember uh, shelving Gomez CDs. Oh shit, I'm uh, showing my age. When I was very uh, when I was still a teen, working at a record store. So Tom Gray basically on Twitter sort of started this campaign, this hashtag called "On Broken Record," where basically he was just sort of pointing out the things that this podcast has spent a lot of time talking about, which is lack of payment from streaming, issues with the major streaming services, and even issues some with the, some with record labels. So basically, he he who works also for PRS for Music um, started like talking about this on Twitter, got a lot of attention around it. This ended up sort of percolating up towards other music industry groups within the UK, i.e. the UK Musicians Union, the Ivers Academy, PRS for Music, and a couple of other UK-based groups. And they basically were able to lobby the UK government 
to get to this report. And so one thing I will sort of say, and then we can sort of dive a little more into it, is that the report does contextualize this within the context of COVID-19. And I feel some of the coverage and some of the attention around this has sort of lost a little bit of that, where it's like, oh, this is because of COVID. It isn't just because of streaming. It is sort of that covid pointed out that, hey, streaming's not working, as you were just saying earlier. So that ended up being sort of the, the impetus for it, was basically all of the UK musician groups. And as Sam and I were talking earlier, the UK is a pretty big part of the record industry and its history. We're sort of like, hey, we need to start addressing this somehow. And so that's how we ended up actually getting to this report, sort of actually coming out. Yeah, as we've covered in this podcast, uh, it's strange but true that like the pandemic, like, really really put a spotlight on just like how fucked up things are because the main just as a reminder if you've been listening like you know one of the main uh revenue sources for artists now is not in sales or streams as i'm sure you know if you listen to this program but like in in touring and so when you have a pandemic you can't tour and so now you're really not making any money yeah and and i think it's a fair question to be like okay so this is a uk government report about the uk music industry why does it matter for the global music industry? Why does it matter for um, the American music industry? Yeah. Um, and I think the thing that's really interesting about this and, and that is going to kind of frame why we decided to do an episode about this is just that there's a growing antitrust, anti-monopoly movement. And it's global enough that it's almost you get the feeling that like there's some sort of... Um, underlying political economy, changing the dynamics of capitalism, changing the relationship between companies and nation states. I mean, so this is not just the EU fining Apple massively. This is not just serious antitrust people being put at in the um like uh, the FTC, uh, the FTC yeah. a variety of like fairly um important administrative posts within the Biden administration. This is also um, China cracking down on Tencent and stripping them. It's been <laughs> bizarre. Uh, so Tencent, major um, musical uh, music conglomerate, but also um, basically giant culture industry conglomerate yeah. with fingers in any number of pies. They had the hilarious kind of the double whammy of having their exclusive licensing rights to the Chinese market stripped away and then also being fined $44,000. Yeah, <laughs> which is funny because originally there were reports that the fine was going to be like in the maybe billions of dollars or something absurdly yeah, I can't, high. I can't get my head around being like, you controlled exclusive licensing for 80% of the global music market in China, and we're taking that away from you, and also we're finding you one expensive car <laughs> like a volvo we're taking a volvo <laughs> yes. and but that's and but like that is sort of the, the moment that we're in where there is some movement in in some of these spaces and isn't exactly clear to me right now looking at it like where this is going so to me this uk report in a way is like a good sort of like opening salvo i mean china sort of just had their regulations come down but to me this is a good opening salvo to get a sense of like what are other countries and what are other groups potentially able to sort of say the music industry needs to be held accountable absolutely and i think what we're going to try to structure this discussion around kind of is like what did this report do really well and i think that that it, it, it stated out and with like the support of like government investigators and being able to, to put numbers together and really get like a pretty clear sense of what's going on in a really useful way. And so like, what did it state out? Right. What like interesting ideas come out of this? And then also like usefully, I think maybe even equally usefully, like what 
did it get wrong in its framing? Because I think there's some major problems with how it's viewing and thinking about the music industry that like, as we think about if this could, you know, make that leap across the pond and ever land in an American context, like what are the issues and problems that like built into the way that this report approaches the music industry that like as three people who are really, uh, I think, more engaged with the shape of, of the American music industry that we'd want to like look out for and think about and maybe even like push on. Yeah. And I think just just before we dive in, I think, you know, you mentioned something that's sort of a good caveat in the sense that like, I mean, UK government may, even making a decision from this report probably isn't going to do much to put a dent in things. But like, you know, you're saying it's maybe possibly like a, uh, a bellwether of things to come. And like if it could, you know, make it to the US, that'd be huge. Or like Yes. And I also want to give one other shout out. Canada is also looking into these things as well. So this is, I mean, in the United Kingdom. I mean, they control the six. So like. <laughs> <laughs> but you have the United Kingdom, Canada, the United States, China. Like, I mean, those are basically some of the biggest global music markets. So if they're all sort of circling the wagons around these topics, then it does sort of say that we can't. We have to sort of, I think this is why we have to take seriously what the UK and to what Sam was pointing out, what they may have been getting right. And then also some potentially like down, like sort of pitfalls within some of the things that they were trying to frame this. Also, just one more quick caveat. The copyright system in the United States is very complicated. Um, they, <laughs> the, the United Kingdoms has different laws. We're going to do our best to like get those things right. Um Please do add us if we have gotten them wrong, any any one of us, uh, v either via email or Twitter or whatever. But like, so we're going to try to indicate like when our understanding, what the barriers of our like understanding of like the legal implications of some of this stuff is. But there are different rights structures there. And just we, this is a different playing field and it's already complicated <laughs> in the one that we understand better. Yes, I absolutely agree. Well, I feel like there was like uh, the report kind of detailed four, you know, I'm doing the Cliff Notes version here, like four major reasons why, quote unquote, uh, music streaming isn't working, as it says. Uh, should we should we dive into that? Sure. Cool. Well, I mean, uh, number one is, uh, was that, if I got this right, I hope I'm right. It says, even successful artists are seeing pitiful returns from streaming. I mean, it is true. It is like that the most successful artists, I mean, they're making a decent amount of money from streaming. But I think the thing that they sort of want to get to, I don't know if they explicitly sort of state, is just that the business model of having to have a volume of streams and the tens to hundreds of millions is just not sustainable for most artists because the concept of getting a million, 100 million streams on a song that you produced is kind of absurd if you really think about it a little bit. So that certainly does make a, lot, does make a, a bit of sense. And then also I think one of the reasons, and then I guess I'll sort of go back to like who called this report. Again, it goes back to, UK like music UK musician musicians is that for artists that were at one point on major labels that were like getting that actual good major label money and getting those good deals that transition from CD to digital was not as we I think I maybe even talked about this before last time I was on wasn't a great deal for them in particular so if that was one what's two so two and the cliff notes version of this 100 page plus report there is a pay disparity between song and record rights holders. That's true too. I mean, that's a whole complicated, and we've talked pretty extensively about about publishing and about yeah. performance and about, in some ways, the different leverages of the different kinds of leverage that publishers who have song rights and record labels who have performance rights, or not performance rights, like uh, master rights, uh, have. And yeah, I mean, that's a, we will get to that in more detail. But I think 
that's fairly accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As the report says that 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 uh, you know current revenue share for streaming gives the record label the majority of a track's revenue. Yeah, right. And then like this oftentimes leaves songwriters and publishers the smallest share of revenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and so three was that, and this is a this is I think that we've oftentimes mentioned on the show, but that there's just three major music companies control the majority of the market. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is I thought where this report got really interesting yeah. because I mean, and this is really the, the crux of the report is that the record industry isn't broken. It's broken for artists, but, and they're able to lay out in a way that I've never, with a clarity, at a precision and a level of data that I've never previously seen laid out. Just the fact, the raw fact that the record industry is bringing in less money as a total amount and that the record companies are making more profit on that money. Yeah, in the last six years, there's been like an increase. In yes, money. that again, I think is something that like we've, we've talked about quite a bit, but I do think it's sometimes that I've talked to Sam about this a lot is underrated in talking about sort of the changes of the, of the last decade within the music industry is that there are only three record, three major records. And, and that as the digital economy has kind of gotten built out and as the kind of shock of that uh, physical to digital transition has kind of uh, f finished being a shock and started being like the new way of the world, it seems in, in many ways that the rest of the report is, 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 a, is a detailing in, in a variety of different ways, the extent to which the, the current structure of the industry is entirely predicated on the ability of not this there to be, it's not just that there's three companies, it's that there's three companies in a relative, I mean, they are in competition with each other, but they also operate as more yes. or less a cartel. Yeah. yeah, and I think probably a good example of that is like the way they've been dealing with, at least in in stuff that we've covered on this program is the way that they've like dealt with Spotify probably is like a good way of like going back to seeing how, like how they operate. Yeah, yeah. The, the fact that basically they're able, because each of them controls roughly a third of the global music market, <laughs> they're able to, especially if they all happen to have deals that, you know, uh, happen to, you know, just by chance more or less come up for renegotiating at the same time, they're able to exert tremendous leverage on the streaming services um, that, you know, if you want, you have to give us what we want if you want our enormous catalog of music and given the fact that the streaming services are all more or less the same in price and in the music they have the loss of one of these companies to any given streaming service would be disastrous yes you don't go to spotify so you don't listen to, to warner music that's just not what happens and so just, so just before we go into like the, the the fourth like major point of this report, like maybe it might be good just uh, for one of you to just give our listeners like w like when did why is there only three like how long has it been has this been a thing without getting into too big of a history because we could definitely go into it. Well, the last time I was on on the show, we should go go back to check out where I talked about sort of Napster and sort of the narrative around Napster. So one of the points that I that I always wanted to I I wanted to sort of drive home with that and pushing back against the sort of the idea that Napster caused the record industry collapse is that. In 2000, there were only a handful of major labels. I think there were, at that, in 2000, there were still like six or like five or six that were then, which is an, yeah, five. So, which is a, 
only two more than three yeah. so not that great but so basically since the 70s since the late 70s there's been a consolidation of, rec of record labels since the late 70s you can kind of there are a number of different points you can point you can point to thorn buying emi back in 79 i always kind of like going back to that one because that's a pretty good example but there have been mass consolidation of record labels since the late 70s up and through the early 2000s so you went from a point of having I would say, again, major labels, maybe like seven or eight major-ish labels to just having three. But I think as Sam actually mentioned like previously is that those major labels in the 70s and 80s were not major labels of how they are in 2000, 2021. And it's actually like probably to their benefit to remain three and continue to act like a cartel, as you said, Sam, because then like you're you know, towing the line, but essentially avoiding the monopoly uh, accusation. Yes. And and I also think that the other thing is that uh, what you were saying about, about the major labels in the past not being major labels now. I also feel like there is a, another state change, which is that major labels selling physical records. I mean, this really maybe gets into the, the heart of the critique that this report gives of the digital infrastructure. We can get to different kind of points and how they, they pull out this point in, in a variety of different examples is that when you're selling physical things, even though a physical major label would have massive abilities to do better distribution, to do better advertising, to get better placement in various outlets, fundamentally they were engaged in the same operation as an indie label, right? You got a CD to a store and you purchased the CD and then there are different business relationships, but in some ways, that's the, it's the same thing. And I think that this report really points out now is that with this kind of trifecta of power and with their relationships with streaming services, they are operating on a different playing field fundamentally than any potential challenger and are able to exert power and influence in a way that no potential challenger could match. So in a way that even in 2000, you could imagine there being another major label emerge now it really i don't think it would be possible because the deals that structure the music industry and the deals that that really organize the hierarchy of the music industry are built by these companies behind the scenes in relationship to the the streaming economy in ways that just you you don't have there's no way to get leverage over that and i think that this report is, is really remarkable in the way that it lays out like over and over again an example after example after example the ways in which that's true yes and we'll probably get more into that uh later into the show so but let me just like go ahead and outline the fourth point the major point is that is uh is basically safe harbor and copyright infringement which basically and either of you could probably explain it better than me but basically uh exempts tech companies from uh, copyright violations that are like user generated. Yes, I will sort of admit that this is different in the UK versus in the United States. And I will be honest to say the UK differences have kind of gone a little bit over my head. I understand sort of these issues. I Get mean, at us copyright lawyers. So, so basically this is about YouTube. This is well, it's a lot of other UGC, like UGC platform, UGC platform, but mostly this is sort of harping on YouTube and the fact that YouTube- UGC? Um, user gener user generated content. User generated content. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Yeah, user generated content. So like for YouTube, basically that any content like YouTube, you can go to YouTube and there will be all music, and then you don't real and they really are like, eh, they close their eyes. We're not gonna really like 
look at it too much and we're just going to sort of have it out there i will say that this is a thing that in the united states there is desire for change and reform to some of this and a lot of what the uk what this report is throwing out is a lot of big reforms to that particular aspect that would have most most impact youtube the reason i want to sort of like mention this is that this report is relatively light on the streaming platforms like if you were coming into this expecting spotify and like apple or amazon to get sort of taken down a peg they certainly do see some things that would be not that would not behoove them but the biggest loser of this would be youtube potentially if all these different sort of reforms that we'll probably get into got enacted it would be youtube because it would have the most change for them yeah and and i do think that that also i mean for for, for my and we've said this in previous podcasts and i do think that like some of that um real reform of some of the advertisement backed companies that have made a killing off of user generated content seems crucial in order to enable any number of like potential changes in the music industry because it does seem important that as much money as these major labels are making and they are now making really good money again it does seem that um in order to get some of these reforms going you'd want to expand the pie um in order to like not like have it be artists v labels um and if it seems like the clearest way to expand that pie is that some of this user-generated content um advertising backed user-generated content that you know youtube makes 15 billion dollars it pays out around three billion dollars in music rights a year but it makes like 15 billion dollars in advertising and some of that money is advertising based on the fact that you can go to youtube and see any piece of music yeah i was just going to clarify or not clarify but i was just going to be clear here is basically like if you uploaded you know a song with your own whatever music video or not even a music video just like an image like to youtube that was you know it might get pulled down it might not but you you could technically like put an ad in front of that and then who's getting the money over that from that ad a creator or potentially the copyright or potentially the copyright holder of the content id system catches it which we don't need to get all into the issues of content id catching sometimes not catching miss like miss like misattributing and or not correctly attributing different tracks and then also like who sometimes where's that money even going something like yeah right it's a exactly. whole like black box there but but safe harbor essentially is is saying that like youtube doesn't get doesn't get nicked for yeah this, yes. or fined yeah. Or, and, or, and, or sued or whatever and also i think that there's all another level which is that youtube's valuation overall they've been printing money based on the fact that they are a free service that you can hear and playlist any song in the world and like even if they're paying out some of that, like there's extra value from this user-generated content, basically like, uh, so you know, it's like, it's like, it's piracy on a mass scale. Yes, yes, yes.
I think so. I think the cool thing about this report, right, is that partially because it had like government research, um, it was able to really clearly state a couple of like profound truths about the music industry in ways that like I had never thought about before. And I thought that like credit where credit is due, we could run through a couple of those and then like maybe talk about the ways in which it gets stuff pretty wrong. Yeah. Um, no, I'm going to say what I'm going to say what were some of those points you thought that it was actually like very illuminating because I also just want to state that like I've been a person for years who's been wanting to see more things like this. Yeah. Like actually seeing like the UK part like you yeah, seeing MPs interview different execs from across the music industry, across musician organizations, like having hundreds of written testimonies coming into the report, which is all government back, which means you can access, download those MP those on um, PDFs. Like this is like- You don't need a Bloomberg terminal. No, you don't. This is actually like one of the like best resources for the contemporary, if you want to understand the contemporary music industry, you can just go to this report, read this report, but also read the hundreds of written testimonies, watch the hours of, of, of interview footage, and you can actually sort of come away with a better understanding of the music industry than most other resources that we have currently available to us. And it's I think, all in one place. Yeah, and I think that's something that should be really, like, champion. I, just, I personally will say I want to champion that to have more governments and more things to try to actually do this kind of work because we don't have a lot of music journalism, folks, and we don't have, like, a... I mean, as we've lamented on this show, yeah, music it, journalism uh, t tends to uh, be lacking in the investigative uh, nitty gritty of what's behind the curtain and, and uh, focuses more on, uh, you know, the ratings or whatever. Yeah. And even I mean, oh, well, we have plenty of great music academics, but I'm sure plenty of academics would love to have the amount of resources and time that the UK was able to provide for this report. So I definitely want to like give a little bit of shout out and support to this yeah, no, just as like a thing 100%. that exists. So one, one of my favorite things that they do in this report is really lay out in, in kind of like almost chilling clarity the way that the modern advanced system functions. Um, just the, the, quick, uh, the quick review, right? Advances are paid to an artist in order often to pay recording costs and to, to pay for some of their... Um, they're just like like their life and their touring and their art um, that is then paid back to the record label through artist share profits, right? And basically, this report lays out the fact that everyone in the music industry has known for a long time that this is now a way for major companies with huge cash flows to buy basically like distressed IP, right? To buy yeah. intellectual property from people when they are at they're absolute most vulnerable when they're trying to break into the industry when they have no leverage or next to no leverage and basically buy up for life, right? Yeah. Buy up yeah. for life the IP that is then going to be that company's bread and butter for the next 20, 30 years sometimes. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that is actually – so, again, let's go back to what I was sort of – what I was saying earlier about, like, this is something that I think – for people who are critical of the music industry, saying that advances are predatory, that's not like a revelatory statement or a revelatory idea, but it is something to actually like see it sort of laid out. In such a systemic fashion. Yes, and I think that's sort of one of the things that I feel, that I found about the report that I really liked was sort of saying, was sort of seeing this just sort of contextualized in this way where I'm like, oh, okay, so this is how this functions within this broader system of again this sort of oligopic this oligopic system that we have right now and and so again and if we think back to like how is the record industry 
taking in less money, but these companies are making more money. And again, thinking about it in this systemic way is that they are by design consistently paying out less money for IP than it would be worth or than it will be worth in any kind of an open market. Yes. So what were some of the things that in, in this, in this, in this uh, section that actually were kind of revelatory for you too? So, okay. So one thing I thought that was, that, that blew my mind was this debate that they lay out and it gets a little bit in the weeds. So we're going to, you know, jump over that ditch mix of mixed metaphors quickly but basically the difference between the debate in a uk law environment between sale and renting and basically this gets in this like whole esoteric argument about is streaming a sale or is streaming a rental and the reason is that there's different kinds of rights that kick in in different kinds of situations but basically it all comes down to that the record industry is entirely focused on saying that streaming is a sale of music because when they set up the system for how record industries have to pay various rights holders for a sale, they were worried about things like how much does the record company have to pay to get the LPs to various outlets? Like how many LPs get broken in that process? And they're still have a, have an infrastructure based on this outmoded system. But like, because it doesn't apply to streaming. It doesn't apply to streaming. Nothing gets broken. No, it's not like 10% of all streams on Spotify break. That's not how that works. <laughs> I mean, it didn't apply to digital sales either, which is, which is again, kind of a, a kind of slightly funny thing. And then also just to sort of say, for the American context, this is also a similar debate can be found within the American record industry and similar kind of back and forth. So I will, I will say, personally, I'm a bit neutral to this only because... I'm a little like unsure, like what direction I would actually want to go sometime with this. Only insofar as I kind of wish we could take a big step back to go, wait, streams, downloads, physical sales. These are all very different things. Maybe we should re-adjudicate a lot of this, but that is not what this report does or what most conversations around this are not interested in re-adjudicating all of that. Instead, it's just trying to discern, is it a sale or is it a rental? And that's sort of where the UK sort of like, sort of like ends up sort of back going back and forth. Yeah. And I think that there is this broader, and we're going to get into this more later in the show, but there is, I think that uh, a critique that you could levy at a lot of this, right? Is that there's a kind of a broad debate about like, which of these fairly contingent legal terms, which all have their very specific historical trajectory that got them to this point, like should be applied, like which one is right? And the answer is 100% of the time, like, none of them. This is a different system. And also, like, no, yeah, no system of laws from the 1950s is going to be, like, an accurate match onto the streaming economy. And trying to frame a discussion about, like, which regime should we go with is always going to leave this, like, an ugly mismatch. Yes, and I think that's only sort of become, I think this is a debate that was had that was had about 20 years ago when we were sort of moving to digital downloads, and there was a lot of back and forth around that. But I think the rise, in the sudden rise of streaming has sort of only heightened this sort of, like, conflict, where instead of it being that streaming, there's, there's a world where maybe streaming takes... 20 year well i guess not really because most format changes in music actually happen relatively quickly right. but there's a world where like streaming takes 20 years to, to sort of come to mature and we have like a couple decades to have back and forth maybe different legal precedents can sort of be established but instead what's happened is that streaming went from a negligible part of the music industry in 2011 in 2011 to being the majority 
way that money is made in 2021. So you kind of are suddenly, instead of trying to figure out how we can get something new or maybe try to propose new solutions, it's how do we sort of adjudicate it based on what we already kind of know. And for publishers, you end up sort of wanting to go on one side and on recordings, for record labels, you want to go on another. And I, I think that that is always given my understanding of like certainly copyright law and the evolution of copyright law in the US, that is always true, right? It's always a weird system that is ill-suited to fit rapid technological change. But I think that the key takeaway for me here is that, the key takeaway for me here is that there isn't ever a natural fit and that interested parties are always going to try to rhetorically position this as there's a right one and the other side is the wrong one rather than always this is a battle about who gets paid out in the music industry and they all are interested readings of laws that are fundamentally artificial systems of description. Well, speaking of payout, there was a lot in this report about who should get paid what in regards to performers, artists, songwriters. But uh, maybe you didn't quite agree with everything that the report had to say there. Well, again, I mean, I think this is like a really good example of what I was just saying. So basically, as we've discussed in, in a number of episodes, um, there's a huge discrepancy between how much songwriters get paid and how much performers get paid. And I'm willing to believe that that discrepancy is a result of like very contingent weirdnesses in various kinds of parts of the industry. And I'm very willing to believe that like the, the outcome of that is unjust. But in the report, the way it's framed is through a set of kind of moral claims that state that there's like an <laughs> obvious rightness about how this these profits should be divvied up. And I guess I feel like at a fundamental level, that's the wrong approach to think about the music industry from, right? So they're saying that like, there should be like, basically like, as far as I can, as far as I read the report, like a 50-50 split yeah. between songwriters and performers. Like why should performers get more money when there's a song and a performance? And I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like this is the kind of thing where like I agree songwriters should be paid more because when you look at the splits it does record the rec record it, record labels do make a, dis a disproportionate amount of money from streaming i agree with this but how much more should be going to those publishers and those songwriters i'm not quite sure and how to adjudicate it I don't think this report makes a great claim. I don't think this report or even the people that argue it to me have a good, clear claim on this. And I think like another, I, I, I'll say this and you can edit it if not, but it's like a similar issue to me can be found with um social media payouts and like TikToks and things like that of like songwriter perform, like who really deserves the money and how should we adjudicate some of this stuff to me still feels very like tenuous and still very like, we're trying to sort of figure this out as we go without there being a clear like line of, of how we should be dividing and demarcating these. Things. Yeah, and it's difficult even when you look at under, other industries for maybe some sort of reference. You know, Sam and I were talking about before we recorded this, the film industry. And like we were talking about, I guess, uh, star power in a sense where if you look at who gets paid more for a TV show or for a, uh, a film, like the actors get paid exorbitantly more than anyone other than like maybe the director but the director's probably like either on par or just below them but the point being is that like the screenwriters 
of a show are getting paid way less than the actors and the director. And yet, like, they're fundamental to the show being what it is. Or let alone, like, even, like, the people who are, like, the cinematographers or whatever. And so, like, but then we were talking about that, and then we started talking about, like, and maybe this is going down, the, like, the wrong path. But just, just a side note here, we started talking about unions and, like, why is the... Because we're like, oh, well, they get paid more because of the unions, right? Because because um, SAG is, like, so much stronger. And they were like, well, why is SAG so much stronger? Because SAG has, like, uh, you know, Timothy Chalamet. And that's why they're stronger and than the writers' unions, right? And so then we're like, okay, so is a lot of the issues when it comes around, like, the payouts, when it comes to the music industry, is because there's not a union that has Kanye and Drake, and they're like, never will be a union that has Kanye and Jake because like they don't want to be in a union, right? I bring it up because it also shows like how music developed here in the United States and also like I guess probably like in the UK and why there's not a union of musicians and artists that is as strong as SAG. And that's like a whole like history. We could probably do like a whole like podcast on that. Right, Elvis wasn't in a union, right? But it also showcases like like probably like a fundamental problem as when we're even trying to discuss this and try to determine like like what the fuck a payout should be for like say the performer versus the songwriter. Yes, and not to get too out there, but I get this sort of goes to like what do we value of music? Like what part of music do we value at sort of a core level? It's like do we value those performers? Do we like when I'm listening to a song, do I care about the person that pinned the the, the song or do I care about the person that who I'm listening to? But then how much does the person who penned the song like is like involved in what you love about that artist? I don't I'm and personally, willing to pay like that money to go to that concert or buy that record. Yeah, no. So the re- but like I think that just does go to sort of a slightly fundamental thing of like when I listen to like an Ariana Grande song and there are seven co-writers on that song. I'm listening to it because of the second sixth co-writer or because of Ariana Grande. I think it's Ariana Grande's while I'm listening to it, but then when I read up about it, I discover that some co- the co-writer number six actually wrote the lyrics that I say all the time. Well, actually, now maybe that person does, in my mind, have a little bit more value and a little and, and has a little bit more like same why connecting with this piece of art. So I not to go too too like at like a too like high level on it, but I do think that there is I think culturally like some sort of like. Re, not rethinking, but a little like conversation and dialogue that some of us probably still need to have about like what is it that we do value in music on some of these things when trying to get to some of these questions. What you what it illustrates is just how complex the issue yeah. is, which yeah. is like the overarching point. Which well, is like it's 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 not just. I mean, it is incredibly complex. <laughs> but in addition, I also think that I think that the moralistic framing around payouts actually makes it very difficult to start thinking about exactly these kinds of issues in a serious way, right? There's an idea that there's like this perfect, like idealized music industry that like different sides have different visions of what it would be like, but there's an ideal, there's an idea that there's a right way to do this. And then there's like this messy, gruppy industry that is actually how it's done. And the point is that I think that like, probably in a music industry under capitalism where like the way that we're assigning value to this like absolutely majestic intangible set of feelings emotions experiences like sound waves like and in the weirdness of how that fits in a, a system where we assign value via money right that that idealized form actually makes it harder to figure out like these kinds of questions that we're talking about right because it's like there is no moral way to do this right it's a 
grubby thing to bring music and sell it and make a living from it. Like that seems almost inevitable to me. And that like, but it's actually not grubby. It's just like, (laughs) this is the way the world works. And I do feel like that, that, that the idealized vision that, so many artists hold to and songwriters like in this case hold to make it harder to like just like bring it down to this level and be like okay there's a bunch of different people who deserve or need to get some sort of payout in order to make this whole system function and it seems to me the task i mean that we are all on the side of and that seems like this report reflects the absolute imperative to figure out a way is that make a system so that a lot of these people who are not making enough money to be able to keep doing what they want to be doing, which is making music, how do we get them paid in a more equitable fashion so they can continue doing that, so they can build lives, so they can like have the things that they value? But like that seems to be to be like an ethical goal, but like the division itself, I think that the more ethically charged it is, it actually makes it harder to like do the kind of like union level negotiation necessary to get people paid. Yes, this is a this is a very good point. I think also sort of gets to I think one of the like I think you're sort of getting to me one of my issues with the report, which I guess is less an issue with the report, but more an issue with just where ultimately it ends up sort of getting to some of I won't get into all the to the recommendations, but it's sort of this point where it's trying to solve a problem. I don't think it is actually capable of solving. Like it's trying to basically try to solve like this issue of artists not getting paid and artists not being able to sustain themselves. And I don't think that almost even taking the totality, these reforms suggest to end up fixing it. I think I think it was the BBC or I think it is either in the report or the BBC called this like a reset. And I thought that was a really good way to describe what this is doing, which is basically trying to reset the current sort of music political economy. It's basically trying to sort of say, hey, guys, the last 20 years, this hasn't worked out super great, but we need to try to fix and try to like offer some of these reforms and changes to at least make it not so everyday like i i don't think any of these changes are going to make it so everyday artists are going to be able to survive via streaming but at least it makes it so the everyday artists can sort of look at what they get from streaming be upset but at least have some context for what they're sort of getting coming from this so so i mean i i think before we get into like the the recommendations yeah. which i think are really interesting and really like in some ways while they i agree with you that they would not fix things i think are some of the most useful like concrete takeaways to like think about in the u.s context i do think you're framing your like the last 20 years um is is really indicative of like for me like one of the biggest problems of this report which is i think that they're they're like historical framing of course i think this but like Sam didn't tell me what his issues with this report were so i've been waiting for this actually it's it's uh i think one of the main issues is just like where they start thinking about the music industry from and where what they take as the normal of the music industry that the current streaming regime is a deviation from. And I think that, I mean, me, me and you, David, have talked about this before, that, like, if you take 1996 as, like, the norm, the baseline for the music industry, it's not going to be a particularly useful set of, 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 of measurements if you're trying to figure out what's happening now. Rather than saying, like, the music industry, something that's changed almost completely every 20 years since it really started in 1896. And, like, 
the all kinds of questions and issues and, and, and artistic forms that we take as normal because our cultural memory goes back to like 1965 um, aren't normal for the long time. And if you assume that we have to go back to that as like some vanished utopia, you're never going to get there rather than being like, oh, things are going to keep changing. Things have changed. Things are going to keep changing. How can we come up with like a set of uh, approaches and resolutions that like fits the current situation without like constantly crying for a path that's never coming back. Well, so if I could just like like maybe succinctly try to uh, translate like or like just to, to to consolidate everything you just said and, and like you're basically saying this report kind of only really went back to basically the year 2000 and like using like the year 2000 as like a baseline for like what we need to return to or like how things have changed or like thinking about the music industry. 2000 was a weird time too, because it was so as you know, past episodes we've had with David on. Yeah. So one of the issues that I have with one of the big issues I have with the report is that it sort of frames a lot of this as a response to piracy acts actually. So there are multiple instances where it talks about piracy and how piracy hurt the music industry and basically put it like put it to its knees. The issue about this is that, in the United States, so I just to go on a small rant about this, rant, is that in rant. the United States, you can see sort of the RIA, the classic RIA charts, where you sort of see the record industry revenues peak out in like 2000, 2001, which correlates directly to, as many graphs show, the rival of Napster. And people say, Napster, oh, the, the revenues, all record highs. Napster arrives, oh, they go down. That's like a clear, like, there's like a correlation made that just doesn't make sense. But in the UK, actually, the, the post- Piracy, piracy, digital, digital recession of the music industry starts in 2005, five years after Napster. So I was doing a little bit of research because so the thing about this is this is um other countries. There's another reason the thing about this is think of Japan and Germany markets that still sell CDs. The idea that like again I had all we had a whole pot on it, but it's like the idea that piracy was a big just like killer of the record industry only really holds in the united states when you look at our when you look at revenue when you look at those revenue charts but again as i sort of have have, have researched before record sales in the united states peaked again sorry i'll go back to the uk but the record in the united states peaked in the mid 90s like revenue kept going up for a few more years because again record all the Five major labels colluded with each other to jack up those prices when when sales started stagnating. So you saw your prices of CDs going up and also, up. Also, extra promotion. You can juice the CD market, right? You can push. If you if you spend more on promotion, you can sell more records, but it it reduces your revenue. Yes. So what happened in the UK, unlike in the US, the UK's actual like revenue peaks happened midway through the odds. Like, so you can b- say that piracy was a big factor or like this report says, like basically almost put the record industry out of commission, but it doesn't even align with sort of the basic economics that you can sort of see where the recession in the UK industry starts in 2005, has the similar sort of precipitous fall, starts recovering in 2014-ish, which is a little early- earlier than the United States because the UK, along with most of Western Europe, had access to Spotify and streaming, music streaming before it sort of got big in the United States. So you sort of see that recovery start a little bit sooner. So this, I think, to go back to what Sam was saying, is that this report basically does start in 2000. But the issue is starting in 2000 exactly for the UK was a fine time for the record industry still. It wasn't until 
five years later when things started to really taper off and you and we know why it tapered off because of digital downloads like the transition from cd sales to digital downloads is what ended up causing that recession not piracy in this report mentions piracy a bunch and also mentions the sort of idea that like we still need to be aware of piracy and concerned about it this is a whole there's a whole other thing to talk about but like there is still a constant drumbeat across the global record industry against piracy and against trying to st stake out piracy. And again, like we described earlier, YouTube being a form of piracy. Spotify is also kind of a form of piracy. What forms of piracy we accept and don't accept kind of are a bit arbitrary. But I do think that in this case, that if you know that the record, the music industry starts recession in 2005, it kind of throws off a little bit of what this paper is sort of suggesting that we this is sort of a response to streaming saved us from piracy where in reality the pi the recession was was hit on because of digital downloads which was a format transition and the what's happening now is again is a format transition from digital downloads to streaming and that is why we have such a different music political economy now because we have a streaming based one where we did previously to go back to Sam's point about the difference between sales and and rentals we now have a pure streaming based uh, uh, music uh, music economy and this basic report is trying to update to that but it's updating to that as if what was happening 20 years ago was a-okay and fine, which is, I would say, a little problematic. And I mean, there really wasn't, I mean, if you, if you listen to this podcast, there really wasn't really a time when it was like a-okay, fine. Like, not really, right? You know, and it also makes it so hard when we're discussing any of this stuff about like what, like we were just saying earlier about like what the payouts should be. And like, I mean, it gets into this really kind of like esoteric philosophical stuff, which is like, what is the value of a stream? Which I know is like pretty controversial, but I mean, angels you know, dancing on the head of a pin. Know, <laughs> right? like, people are like, you know, like, Oh, a dollar a stream or whatever. But it's like, that, that, aren't, that even that number seems arbitrary. And like, listen, I'm on the side of the musicians and the songwriters and all of them. Right. But it's like, how do you put a value on that? And also I think, I think just to build, build on, on what, what you said, David is, is like the rhetorical use of piracy here is that the changes that are occurring in the record industry in some ways it, it goes against the major thrust of this report overall which is that like piracy is used by the record industry as an excuse for why things have to be the way they are and if piracy didn't apply equally across the globe if as I mean I've argued before like if the, the record industry is susceptible to repeated cycles of kind of boom and bust boom and bust that in, in some ways are like prompted by that like record sales are kind of flattening out let's juice them by spending more money um that means that like that was even you know in a world where like internet it, it rolls out slower there was gonna be a major decline of the music i mean so they can and some of this retrenchment that they say is a response some of this concentration and consolidation that they say is a response to piracy like, it, it isn't <laughs> no well yeah but it's interesting because it sounds like we're all saying and even this report is saying, you know, that, ex well, maybe not, not the report, sorry, but it's, you know, it sounds like that excuse is wearing thin, but the problem is, is that where's the correction going to come from? And that's kind of, I think what you, maybe why you're sort of excited about this report also, because it kind of like, I mean, like I said earlier, like the UK government isn't going to like stop the big three from like, you know, changing their ways, but it might be like a bellwether for the future. But once again, I mean, and then we've talked about this issue a lot. It's like, 
there isn't like a format change yet, or there isn't like a real, com real competitor to like the major streaming platforms yet, you know, and there's like some alternatives that we've obviously talked about, but you know, like, I think that's also kind of an issue, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think going back to what you're saying about there, there never really being a good time is also, I think that, um, the flip side of the piracy argument is that I think that that accepting of what how things were like in 2000 as a good time, as something that's reasonable, as something that was a historical, like as the norm that this is a deviation from, limits the imagination of a lot of the yeah, people yeah. in this, who a lot of people who I agree with in other ways in this report, right? Some of this is like, and, and it became really clear to me, there's some complaining about like, songs are getting shorter these days and like i used to have a 45 second intro on my guitar like epic guitar rock thing and now i have to make it short so it hits and i'm like this is not <laughs> streaming is not the first time that technological changes have altered how music works and if the assumption is that what we need to get back to is the cd era when things were way too long no album needs to be 72 minutes 42 minutes tops this is the hill i will die on yeah. and like this, so this period of time when like tracks were really inflated and really long, and we take that as like the norm, and that's just a, you know, in, in, that's a, a aesthetic, you know, an aesthetic argument. But like we take the, the the entire system as the norm. Like whatever happens in the future, even a more equitable future, isn't gonna look like two thousand. Yeah. Yes. 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 Even though I agree, the songs are too short now. I would like my songs longer. I would like my songs to be longer. But I do agree that that is a really good point that I think it does sort of limit, it limits the imagination, it limits the scope of what this sort of like vision could be. It's why, again, I, 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 I started to sound like a shill for this report because I really do like, when we'll get to it in a, in a little bit, but the recommendations, I think this is what it's so odd about this report to me in one way, maybe this can be a sort of a, a pivot is that reading the whole report I have a lot of issues with it. I have a lot of things. I think there are a lot of good things, like some of the things that Sam was mentioning earlier about advances and a lot of stuff, actually a lot of stuff around Safe Harbor, I thought was super interesting, especially from the UK context, kind of understanding the issues of YouTube are truly global issues, are really good to kind of understand. But the framing of it, I find so problematic that I find the actual recommendations towards the end kind of a 180. Where like in the recommendations, I'm like, oh, I start seeing that they seem to see a lot of these issues as a little bit deeper and more fundamental than I think the actual report sort of suggests in a way. So like what, let's just talk about some of those recommendations. So like what's, what's some of your favorite recommendations? David? So a lot of my, so my favorite recommendations are actually the ones where they sort of point out and sort of make, and this is where my lack of full comprehension of the UK regulatory system will come to light is they make a lot of recommendations around the oligopoly of Warner universal and Sony and sort of saying to like the comp, I think it's like the, the CMA, the CMA, which I think is like, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the acronym of it, but it's like a, another higher up UK regulatory board basically saying, Hey, look into this. They basically sort of kick a lot of things to like, they kick a lot of cans actually related to the oligopoly of the major labels and are like, this seems fishy. Look yeah, yeah, more yeah. into this. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. It says the, the, the government refer, uh, it says we recommend that the government refer a case to the Competition and Markets Authority, which is that CMA, to undertake a full market study into the economic impact of major dom of major's dominance. The government must also provide the CMA with the resources and staffing to undertake this case. I also want to like underline that resources and staffing. I've been a very, this has been a personal bugaboo of mine. I also don't know. This is also just the pandemic has made it very clear. We need government staffing and resources to actually see things actually done you just don't say the government do a thing and like 
does it like poof there have to be dozens if not hundreds of people actually working day to day to investigate these things and as we've been talking the music industry very complicated needlessly so and just having three or four people looking at some reports is not going to like solve any of these kinds of issues but that to me was super surprising because reading this report I mean, it points out the issues of the oligopoly and sort of the issues of the major streaming services, but I was not expecting them to sort of say, we need more oversight and more investigation to what is sort of happening in these markets. Like that is actually to what Sam said earlier about antitrust becomes kind of an interesting sort of next step of like, oh, are we really looking into some of these antitrust concerns and sort of these concerns of potential monopoly behavior in, in, in these spaces? And I mean, one of the things I think that, that I really like that they like, drill down a little bit more else they were like uh in terms of things that we need more oversight and detail into is the complete and total lack of transparency about how much of the system works in particular the relationship and the deals between streaming services like spotify or apple music and the major labels and my, my reading the report was like they were like we couldn't get access to this information and we need access to this information and if the government can't you know a major government can't get access to the information like an artist sure isn't going to be able to you hear that uh low-level mid-manager of a music streaming service uh feel free to leak uh your documents uh to us at uh money for nothing but i'm just <laughs> i think that happened once with sony i think this i think i think the sony spotify like early contract i think that leaked at one point if i remember right but no that is absolutely correct i mean the secrecy of those deals ends up being a huge I mean, again, not to, okay, I'm going to show my day job for two seconds, so mind me. But the recommendation 24, which was about user-centric streaming, <laughs> which is something that SoundCloud introduced for our direct consumers um, earlier this year, that is something that, like, we did, and you have to go around it. There's a reason we did it for our direct artists that distribute through SoundCloud and all of that stuff is because hey, if we did it with other artists and other ones on other major labels or indie labels, that has to be discussed in our negotiations that we have. So, like, I do think that this is a thing to, like, be very, like, honest. And I think in the report they say, like, this may be impeding competition or, like, innovation and stuff. And I'm like, I'm okay, innovation, competition, okay, inno innovation, scare quotes. But, like... It is true. It is true that, like, when you have three labels that basically have such a strong oligopic hold on things, it limits the vision and the possibility of what could be done. Because if Universal says, no, you cannot do that, Warner and Sony then have to agree, yes, you should. What is it in their interest if one, of the, if one already says no? So I think that that is something that I very much, like, appreciated seeing this report sort of going to town on of trying to look at the major labels because again not i have my own biases on this just to be very clear but it's like major labels own a lot of the like infrastructure like own in a physical in like in a true sense but also have invested in a lot of the infrastructure that we think about in terms of like the contemporary record industry like most live streaming services that have been popping up over the last year, a lot of those are um, invested in by major labels or by record managers, like record, like record execs or former managers or artists. I wonder what the eventual next step of that is. Um, Spotify, who are they invested in? The major labels. Like this is all like this is one of my like things of the last 20 years when you only have a handful of labels and as te new technology has emerged. 
those labels are always right there. They are not surprised or shocked by any of these things. They are usually early investors into all of these different sort of gambits so they can sort of have a say on the overall direction of the industry, even if they don't have sort of a like whole, even if they don't own the company, they're making sure it doesn't veer too outside of the, outside of the range. And I think that's something that like this paper doesn't really go as much into at all, really. But like that those recommendations at the end sort of point to some of this sort of control that it has was a bit surprising to me to sort of see. I mean, I also think that that recommendation about the need for transparency also was exciting to me because it feels like unlike some like we think that the the broad system is like that seems like something that could be done or could be you know like you get a congressional panel um you you start subpoenaing people like you could get that information and that seems like a, a clear concrete thing that even if it didn't fix the record industry like shining a light on some of that could change stuff could bring real public real publicity to it and it felt like like that is a discreet thing that if it came to the u.s and the u.s music industry like it could that could shake things up in like a real way I was gonna say, I think this is something that I've sort of been thinking a lot more about as I've done more research into the copyright royalty board and sort of the context of how that was even sort of like instituted with the cop and like the early ruling of the copyright royalty board were basically the record the record part of the record industry going into the publishing side of the record industry to basically be like hey there are like these new formats and new things like ringtones and things coming or like um web or web broadcasting it's like hey we want to get paid more for this we want you guys to get paid less and they to adjudicate that they basically the copyright royalty board was like oh, okay, I guess this is like one of the things that they had to sort of adjudicate and figure out. They ended up going on the side of the record record labels who obviously had more money and more resources. But like, that's a constant to what Sam was saying earlier. That's a constant back and forth. Those are things that are going to be constantly negotiated and renegotiated over time. And it isn't kind of a thing that you can just sort of like lay down the law once and say, we are done with this and don't need to think about it. I think one of the things that was exciting about the idea of having staffing and resources is to sort of take sort of a different view of what the government's relationship to an industry is, which is that the government relationship to this industry isn't one of sort of hands off or only checkmarking whatever tax deductions, which like a lot of, again, I read a lot of these um, submissions and a lot of the independent, independent scare quotes groups wanted tax breaks, a lot of tax breaks coming from independent groups. Like they have like independent, like record groups have no imagination, but just 
getting tax breaks and maybe a little bit of like government subsidy from the government. They don't want any. They don't want to change anything. Obviously, they just want like yeah. subsidies. It's kind of the scam of like nonprofits too, right? Like, yes, it is. <laughs> but like so, but like this, but like that's to me what this sort of pay, this is what was exciting to me was sort of this vision of sort of saying we need to keep vigilant oversight of what is happening here we cannot take our eye off the ball and sort of say hey the record industry is just going great it's going good and we don't need to keep our eyes on it. it's like oh there are issues but we need to be accountable and keep trying to be more accountable to the ever changes that are happening in so what, one of the clear examples of like accountability that i thought they, they, they gestured towards and that like i on reading this felt like um they could have taken even further is, you know, we, we, you know, listeners of this podcast will probably know that there's like a lot of chicanery around uh, playlist placement yes. and kind of like what you might call like soft payola. And they have this kind of soft suggestion that much like some of the laws about, which are, you know, patchily enforced, but some of the laws about certain kinds of influencers where when it's a paid advertisement, when it's a paid placement rather than an editorial pace placement, you would need to, um, say that and honestly it made me think that like one small reform that you could import from again kind of the what i read as the suggestion in this is legalize payola legalize payola because right now the majors have agreements with the streaming services that basically amount to like i would call it like payola in kind right you scratch my back i scratch your back I give you a good rate. You put my major label songs on a playlist. But if you just said, which cuts out, if my indie wants to get like a a song put on like the Atlanta specific playlist, I have no ability to do that really. But if if it's an official Spotify playlist, but like if you just made it so like I could pay, I actually think that in a weird way, it would open up some of, at least allow other groups to compete with the majors on their own turf in ways that are currently currently impossible for them and also less obscure them too which i think goes also back to the transparency where it's not also to the deal that's like you sign a deal that says we need this much of this art of this label on each playlist and everything that we promote yeah where do i fit in on this if i'm on an indie label i guess maybe hopefully merlin signs something to get you a little bit of like that five or six percent and then if you're not on a merlin label like i mean you sign you sign to a major that's it that's what you do you want to get in that playlist you sign to a major yep yeah and i mean i guess like you know the sort of classic critique of what you're saying sam is then like well then obviously like only like you know whatever people the resources the ones with resources and money are going to be the only ones uh, they can really like pay for that if they, if you legalize like payola and like it basically becomes like sort of a, a, a support of like a, a of a uh, economic prosperity. But actually, in reality, I mean that's kind of the way the society already is. <laughs> yeah. And if you actually look at the art world, I mean, you know, they deal more like in, with patrons, and then you know, or like you know, and and that's kind of the way that your you know residencies are supported by patrons or whatever, and that's how artists are supported. And so in a weird way, it's like yes, that's true. Like we live in a world of inequality, economic inequality, of course. But in a weird way, like I think like by just like legalizing payola, you would actually kind of create possibly like a new market or like a new investment strategies for like these uh, these patrons to like invest in uh, I don't know merge records or whatever. And I mean, I think if you look at the long history of payola, I mean, my sense is that the oftentimes the the the, the labels that have 
now I don't know. I don't know about benefited the most, but suffered the worst from the times when payola is cracked down on are in the U.S. black-owned record labels that consistently have used payola and access and relationships to local markets and local DJs, especially in kind of the radio era, yeah. to get indie stuff into larger distribution. And when payola gets cracked down on and they can't have those relationships, it's harder to break into those bar- those markets. And that's just like I think. Fairly uncontroversial historically. Yes, and I think this sort of to parallel it goes back to sort of the safe harbor YouTube issue of again. It's like some of this is about and it's weird to say, but it's opening markets. It's like there are <laughs> right? a lot of markets that are not that are right now very much closed, and you have no. They're closed, obscured, and you don't really have any way of understanding how they even operate and work. And I think going to the playlisting is a great example of that. And I guess I would be. I find the playlisting thing funny because I think it was like four years ago I wrote a, like when I was doing more music journalism I wrote a story about how rap caviar every song was on a major label and I just remember just when was I was that did, you yeah oh, that was I, loved, I loved that article yeah I didn't know that was fun. you yeah but what was funny about that when I did it was like I was like oh well yeah that obviously makes sense and like everyone that I knew in the record industry was like oh that's obvious but like most other folks were like oh really it's all major label and I'm like yeah, of course it's all major label. Who do you think? Yes, of course. I think though that like you mentioned something earlier that maybe would be a good way to like tie a bow on this uh, on this episode because obviously we could talk about this for hours. There's a lot in it. there's a lot in it. But uh, what what was about transparency? And I don't think we ever like really like fully have directly acknowledged that that was like kind of something maybe dealing with the like the oversight and everything is like showcase like having more transparency about these deals and like you know sam i know that that was something that you were talking about like earlier before we recorded oh just like what what that could do yeah yeah exactly you know yeah i mean i i think some of this i think is like name and shame is real right Mm -hmm. and that by uh when real abuses get pushed at or when real abuses get by the industry get highlighted um sometimes they at least for a period of time get better but but more than that i feel like the basic grasp of people who have real vested interest in this whether that's fans or uh people kind of in the ancillary music industry you know the live industry um musicians themselves the grasp over like how this industry is structured at like a macro level is because it's so different than the way that everyone still the the way that we're familiar with it working and even though it's been 20 years i think that there's a long hangover from the previous century of recorded music which makes sense but like understanding the kinds of relationships that structure the music industry and how they are deliberately designed to create and maintain hierarchies of power and profit i think that can only be good to if only to help people start imagining what something else could look like, right? Yes, I think this is, again, wh- why I was just so happy to see this report towards the end come out, like, swinging against the major labels and in some ways not swinging as hard against the streaming services. Obviously, bias, my day job. But the reason why is because I think it gets to something that you guys talked about when you did your episode about Ticketmaster, is that I think that there are a number of different inter- in, like entities in the music industry that are vilified... I think in some ways correctly. There's not. I'm not gonna. I don't like Ticketmaster, Live Nation, or any of those companies. But those are not great businesses. You, those are very like low margin businesses. And they're doing things that someone needs to be doing. Streaming is very similar. 
How much money are we making on streaming platforms, folks? Not a lot. Yeah, and they're trying. They're really trying. But, like, these are... Yeah, but there are a lot of parts of the music industry that are just not really sustainable businesses. And they are not businesses that are actually, like... That exist, basically, I mean, on the streaming side, at the largest of our other companies. Apple, Google, Amazon. That's why we have those, those services. And so I kind of sometimes do think there is a little bit of value to not center and again i've had my criticism of the justice spotify campaign for this reason it's like not to center these companies that do not actually have as much sway in the political economy of the overall recording music industry they have a lot of sway to me on the cultural side like the cultural impact of a spotify and an apple music is really hard to understate the last five six years it's fairly clear but those artists that I'm thinking about that came through Apple Music or came through any of these platforms, they're signed to major labels. They're not independent artists. Like, Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, with the one caveat yeah. on top of a caveat, and again, yeah. this goes down the endless rabbit hole, is I think that there's also, and this gets complex, is that you said Apple Music, right? And not Apple. Mm. Because, I mean, there are some, not every company involved in music streaming is the same. Some of them are called Amazon and some of them are called Spotify. And even though Spotify is in many ways, at least in the US and in much of Europe too, the dominant. Yes. In the UK, especially it's very dominant. In the UK. It, dominant streaming service like Spotify. This is Spotify's entire business where like Amazon can just burn, literally just burn. Like they did that. They shot a big rocket full of money up into the sky. <laughs> like they literally, you can just burn money. But I'm just saying like, there is a tricky thing where some of these companies like, iPods was a high profit business. Yeah. Um, and trying to unpack these different tech companies and how they interact in this ecosystem is incredibly complicated and without transparency, impossible. Yes. And I think that maybe why I think so, yeah, to go back to those deals, it's like, okay, so it's like, it's hard to sort of conceptualize where, how Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google, YouTube relate to the big three of Universal, Sony, and Warner. But if we at least could see what do those deals look like. And a good example of this, again, on the American content, the Copyright Royalty Board on their last, like, I think it was the Phonograph 3 ruling, which was about mechanical you royalties. You anticipated. Sorry. Yeah. About mechanical. You guys should need to do an episode on the, on the CRB soon or one day. But it's like in that ruling, every major streaming service except Apple we're, go we're ruling against it. They basically were challenging this ruling that would have paid more to songwriters. Spotify, Pandora, Amazon were all against it. Apple was like, we're not going to comment. They like dipped out of that. They did dipped out of it. And I think that's interesting to what Sam is saying. All of these companies are sort of operating at kind of different points and different levers within this and not having clear transparency of the deals being signed, of the terms of these deals and what it is that these companies are even asking for out of these record labels each time and back and, by, and, and vice versa makes it hard to really understand what's even really going on here. Otherwise, you just kind of like assume that oh streaming services are bad and record labels are bad without a clear understanding of how those dynamics are pulling at each other yeah and i think that's i think that's a good uh, a good way I, I think that's a good thought for for ending the show you know spotify is not the only villain here uh there are other villains do your research and don't be like pearl jam <laughs> <laughs> except like fretless basses
Uh, okay, no, 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 not get into the music of it. Sam really <laughs> wants this to turn this into like an actual like music talking about music, music like podcast. Like I constantly, we have to constantly like you know someday, someday we'll do that. <laughs> uh, David Turner, thank you so. Uh, Penny Fractions, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer. As always, music by Bird Language. We'll be back in two weeks. I promise, no delay this time. Rate and review on iTunes. It helps us out. And if you want to like uh, school us on UK safe harbor laws money for nothing podcast at gmail.com see you in a bit bye